Let's go ahead and open our Bibles up to the book of Amos. We are back in chapter 5, verses 18 through 27. If you don't have a Bible, you're more than welcome to use the black Bible in the pew in front of you. And you're also welcome to take that home and read it. Let me open with prayer. Father, we're here this morning because we need you. We need you in a way that we can't even begin to understand, but for the, for the part that we do understand, Lord, uh, we pray that you would give us everything that we need. We pray that you would help us to have a vision for holiness. We pray that you would uh, empower us to live out that holiness according to the truth of your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit and to the glory of your most perfect name. Amen. We have three points this morning. I'm going to give them to you at the outset of the sermon. Uh, Our desires, our worship, and our exaltation. Our desires, our worship, and our exaltation. Uh, We're not going to read all of uh, the scripture this morning at the outset of the sermon like we usually do. We're going to take it piecemeal as we walk through each one of these points. So let's just dive right in. Point number one, our desires. Uh, One of the things that sticks out to me about my childhood was how much I wanted to be an adult. You remember what that was like being a kid? You just, you wanted to be an adult so bad, so bad. For the kids in the room, you're probably like, yeah, I just want to be a grown-up, right? Because it seems like when you're a kid and you're looking at the lives of, of adults, it just seems like they can do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want. They can stay up late as they want. They can watch whatever they want, what kind of movies they want. They can eat ice cream and cake anytime they feel like it. They get to drive. It seems like adults get to have conversations of all sorts and varieties that kids can't partake of, you know, either because it's not appropriate for our little ears or because we wouldn't understand, you know. It seems like adults have access to all the wisdom and knowledge in the world, you know, just how often are you told as a child, you'll understand when you get older. This all makes sense when you're an adult, you know. So everything about being a kid is you look at the lives of adults and you just see that off in the horizon, off in the distance, and you say, man, I want that. I I want that. I want to be an adult. But then you become one. And when you become an adult, you realize just how foolish those desires were. It's true that adults do get to drive, but you know what else adults get to do? Pay car payments. You know, they get to have insurance costs. They have to deal with maintenance and upkeep and tire rotations and oil changes and everything else that goes along with that. Yes, it's true that grown-ups do seem to have a lot of money that they can just spend whatever, you know, however much they want, whenever they want, except for that's actually not true at all. We have a very finite amount of money, and we have to work very, very, very hard in order to get that money, right? If you even just think about, like, as a kid, if you do something and you break a law, you'll probably get a slap on the wrist. As an adult, you may end up going to prison. Even with the, the knowledge and wisdom that adults possess that children don't have, Well, that's great, but along with that comes with a certain loss of innocence and an increase in responsibility that as a child you just can't even begin to understand. And the examples could be multiplied. And now most of us 
as adults, we, we sit and we look at our children or, or just children in general, and we only half-jokingly say, man, that's the life, you know? Man, I wish I could be your age again. I wish I could be a kid again. And that's just one example of a thousand different ways that as human beings, we, we have these desires. We look at things that are off in the horizon in the distance of our lives, and we think, man, I really want that so bad. I, want, I wish that was here now. Maybe you're tired of working and you're getting close to retirement and you think, man, I want to be retired so bad, right? But then when you do get retired, you're going to find out what a lot of other retired people before you found out is that you're going to miss some things then. There's a sense of purpose that comes with your work that you might lose later in life. And so there's just all these things in our lives that we, we look forward to off in the distance, but sometimes those desires are misguided. They're inaccurate. And it seems like the same thing is happening on a corporate level with the nation of Israel in this morning's text. It seems like they are desiring something in the future that they should, in fact, be dreading. So let's look at starting in chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Well, it seems like in this morning's text, the people have a strong desire for the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is uh, something that is, it's a theme that runs throughout almost all of your Bibles, but that, that phrase is used for the very first time in this morning's text in the book of Amos. Now, the day of the Lord refers to the day of judgment, okay? That's when God comes and he sets things right. Now, that can happen for Israel or Judah. It can happen to other nations, as we see talked about in the book of Isaiah, right? But what you really need to understand about the day of the Lord is that it's not just one single event. It's not just the last day, okay? The, the day of the Lord is any time the Lord comes and sovereignly intervenes and establishes his justice when he, when he puts all the broken pieces back together again and makes things right. And so what you see throughout the Bible is this cycle of the days of the Lord. There are these little foreshocks before the big earthquake comes, which is the final day of the Lord on the last day. Now, the people of Israel were likely looking forward to the day of the Lord because they were experiencing political turmoil. You know, the nation of Assyria had already come down once and, and put its big boot on their neck, installed their little puppet kings and puppet government. And, you know, they're surrounded by some of these other nations that, that they're clashing with, like Moab and some of the nations we saw at the beginning. And they're probably waiting for the day when the Lord's going to come and reestablish what they once knew, which was glorious independence as a nation. And they, they probably think that it's about to happen. They're probably hungry for it again because they, they think that things are going well in their lives, right? Their borders are expanding. They're, they're prospering financially. It's, there's, there's relative peace in the area. So, 
So they probably think, man, everything is going so good. All the dominoes are sort of falling. And now the last big domino to fall into place is for the Lord to come and kick these Assyrians out of here and to get all these other little nations uh, away from our borders. And so they are expecting the day of the Lord. They want it. They want it bad. They want God to come into justice in the land. They want the land to be illuminated with God's justice. But should they want that? Look at verse 18b again. Second half of verse 18, it says, Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. And you see that same sentiment often in verse 20. Go back to verse 20. It says, is not, not, he's asking it rhetorically, Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? and gloom with no brightness in it? Here we see that the prophet expresses shock. He's surprised that the people of Israel are, are looking forward expectantly and hopefully for the day of the Lord. It doesn't make any sense to him. And the reason why is, he says, because the day of the Lord is not going to be light for you. The day of the Lord is going to be darkness. Now, what's really interesting about this day of the Lord and the whole, the, the picture of darkness and light. What's really interesting about this is that it is entirely subjective. Now, what I don't mean to say is that God coming to do justice is subjective and that that's always light. It's always a good thing when God comes to establish his perfect rule and reign in a place. What I mean to say is Israel can look forward to joy or dread on that day depending on whether or not they are walking in justice or corruption. They are the ones who have the choice of whether or not the day of the Lord will be darkness or light for them. The day of the Lord is always going to be, to be light, but if they're on the wrong side of God's justice, then it will not be light for them. It will only seem as darkness. Basically, Israel controls the dimmer switch, if you will, for the day of the Lord. And as it stands on the day that this oracle is being delivered to the people in the north, they have not turned that switch to a bright light. Now, I think that there are a couple of application points for us here. Um, I think one of the simplest ones is, is a drum that we regularly beat in this church. And, and just so you know, I'm going to forewarn you. This morning's sermon is going to be a lot of repetition. A lot of the application point is going to be like, but didn't you say that 17 times over the last month? And I did, but it's just coming up again in the text. And so we're just going to say it a different way and just trust that the Lord is saying this again to us because we need to hear it. But here we go. The first application point is we really need to be careful of trusting our desires, Right? Our desires are not inherently trustworthy. The prophet Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful. It's wicked. It's deceitful above all things. You know, it's so often the case that we desire things that we should, in fact, dread. We live in a time where the only true truth is that nothing that I desire can possibly be wrong. Right? My desires are always right. They cannot possibly be maladjusted, misinformed, or corrupted by sin. If I feel it, it is good, it is right, it is true. If I want it, I should have it. This is the gospel of our times, 
And if you are a heretic, you will be punished. As Christians, however, uh, yeah, we should know better. And honestly, we should, we should know better from like everything that the Bible says about this, and we've talked about that at length, but you don't even really need a prophet to tell you that you can't trust your desires. All you need to do is just have a little bit of self-reflection. Just think about your own life and how often you've desired things that turned out to be, well, really bad for you. You wanted it so bad, and then when you got it, you realized how, really how dumb you were being. Now, the older you are, the more examples of this you can probably think of in your life. If you're sitting here, you're like 16, you're like, no, I don't think I've experienced that much. Well, you know, give it some time, live life a little bit. Or think about how often you have not wanted something only to later find out that you, in fact, should have wanted it the whole time. I'm going to share a silly example with you guys uh, for the kids because this is something that maybe you can relate to, okay? And maybe not. Maybe you're just, you're an adult and you love what I love and we can connect over nachos. But I'm going to tell you guys, I loved eating nachos when I was growing up, okay? I ate them any chance I got. Go to 7-Eleven, which we don't even have that here in Alabama, so I guess I'll move right past that. 7-Eleven, I would get their chili cheese nachos. No surprise that I was an overweight child. But everybody used to tell me, dude, you got to put jalapenos on your nachos. And I was like, what? No way. First day I put a jalapeno on my nacho, my world was changed, right? My life, just everything, uh, just a, a paradigm shift like nothing I had ever experienced before in that 12 years of my life. And then I realized I should have been desiring this the whole time. Now listen, I know that that's, uh, that's silly, okay? Maybe too silly. I probably should have kept that up. But anyways, I know it's silly. But whether we're talking about something silly like that or something major in our lives, the point should be pretty obvious that our desires mislead us. Whether we desire not to partake of something or whether we desire to partake of something, our desires are not wholly trustworthy. They're not even halfway trustworthy. Our moral compass does not always point us true north. Now, another thing that we should take away from this text is, is we should note how proud are the hearts of the Israelites, right? They don't even have a category for the possibility that the day of the Lord could come to the land and that, that they would be on the wrong side of God's judgment, right? We see this trend over and over again for God's people. It's still going on in the days of Jesus, right? But when, when God comes to do justice, the Israelites always think, yeah, Lord, get them. Get them. Punish them. Give them what they deserve. They don't even stop to consider the fact that they may be the ones, in fact, that need to have justice served upon their heads, and as we've walked through the book of Amos, we've seen for the Israelites in the day of Amos, that is certainly the case. They are the ones who are walking in injustice. It's kind of like two brothers who are out like throwing rocks, you know, and uh, one of them accidentally throws a rock and breaks a window and the other brother runs back home to tell dad, man, dad's going to get you, you know, and then dad comes out of the house, finds out they've both been throwing rocks and spanks them both. You know, that's, that's what we have here. The, the, the people of Israel don't realize that they are living in the same kind of sin as their pagan neighbors. So when God comes to do justice in the land, they're getting spanked just as well as all the surrounding nations. So often, we want justice. We desire it. We crave it. But all too often... We forget that if God comes to bring justice, we need to make sure that we are found to be just. 
We forget that if God comes to do justice, that any person who is in sin will not escape his just gaze because we are not innocent. The only hope that any of us have on the final day of the Lord is to be found in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to do that which we could not do, which was to walk uprightly, to live a life of perfect justice and obedience to the Father. And he did it. He did it perfectly. And rather than receiving the, the commendation, the reward, the joy that he should have received as the perfectly obedient son, what he in fact received was God's wrath and punishment. He was the recipient of God's divine justice. And he took the payment for sins that we should have taken. But when he did that, when he paid that price on that cross, he made a way for anyone who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ to be found righteous on the day of God's great judgment. Jesus Christ stands now and he offers anyone and everyone the opportunity to be found in him if only they would turn away from sin and trust in his perfect sacrifice. This is the doctrine of justification. We are not just, we are unjust. We are not righteous, we are unrighteous. But because of Christ, we can be counted as righteous. We can be found in him when God comes to do justice. Therefore, friends, if we are in Jesus, we can look forward to the day of the Lord, right? I mean, and I do, I look forward to it. I'm so excited and I'm so tired. You know, it's a mixture of both. I'm tired of fighting the fight. I'm tired of dealing with injustice out there and in here, unrighteousness out there and in here. And I just want Jesus to come back and to fix it all. Now the question is, am I being foolish like these Israelites? Do the words of Amos stand up against me today and say, Sean, why do you desire the day of the Lord? It will be darkness for you. And friends, if I am found in Christ, the answer is no. It will not be darkness. It will be nothing but light and light everlasting. Now there's more than justification. The, the Christian gospel does not end at being justified because those who have been justified will continue on to live lives of justice. Those who have been found righteous in Christ will go on to live lives of righteousness, to do good works, to stop. Remember when we were walking through the book of Ephesians? Paul spent the first three chapters saying, hey, this is who you are in Jesus, and if that's true, you'll stop doing this, and you'll start doing that. Well, that's, that's true of our lives, friends. This is how God is calling us to live. That's why the prophet Micah summarizes what God wants from us in saying to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. In Ephesians 2.10, we're told that in light of our great salvation, in light of the fact that we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, we should do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. One of the main ways that you can have confidence that the day of the Lord will not be darkness for you, one of the main ways that you can have confidence that you are, you are actually justified is if you are walking justly, if you are living upright spiritual lives, right? It's a good indicator of our spiritual health. My microphone's going crazy today, guys. I'm sorry if that's distracting. One of the main ways that you can have confidence that you are just 
justified as if you were walking justly. So think about it like this. A person with good blood pressure and high cholesterol and a low resting pulse rate may still die of a heart attack. When I was in the Army, I remember working at uh, Walter Reed Medical Center, and this guy, 36 years old, picture of health, used to run marathons, collapsed dead on a treadmill one day. Just heart just gave out on him. There was no indicator that that was going to happen for him because he was supremely healthy. But those are usually the exceptions that prove the rule, right? Usually, if you have a low resting pulse rate, you have good cholesterol, and you've got all these other good heart health markers, you're probably not going to die of a heart attack. Or in the same way, good works and being just people don't guarantee that we're justified, but they're usually good indicators. We can probably look at our lives and examine to see how we treat, how we love God and love our neighbors and ask, do I have a good reason to be confident in my justification? If you don't, stop every now and then and do a good self-diagnosis. And by every now and then, I mean, you know, at least once a week when we're talking about these things together as a church, you know? But if you don't do that, you may find yourself caught off guard, which is exactly what he says about the Israelites here in verse 19. He says, it's as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. So what he's saying is like you, the people of Israel, you think that you've escaped one thing only to find out, no, you're actually still in trouble. Like a man who ran away from a lion and comes into contact with a bear when he's running away from a lion. Then he multiplies the illustration. He says, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. This Almost this very thing happened to me when we, we were missionaries. We were living in a hut in the jungle and went out to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and I came back and I closed the door to our little bedroom, if you will, and right when I, my hand was on the wall, I, my flashlight, I looked over to the right, there was a tarantula the size of my head on the wall. I'm not saying he was going to bite me, but he looked like he was primed to bite me. You know what I'm saying? And God's point is this, listen, you may think you've escaped all these bad things like, hey, I rescued you from Egypt. I took you from the 40 years wandering in the wilderness, brought you to the promised land. You think you've escaped one thing, but if you don't walk justly, you're going to come into contact with me and you're still going to get God. For 2,000 years, Christians have been saying, come, Lord, quickly. Maranatha, come, come and take us home. And we should say that. But if we do say that, or as we do say that, we should actually make sure that we are prepared to meet the Lord when he does come. One final point of application here from point number one on evangelism. Uh, friends, we should just remember that the day of the Lord is coming. There are these little iterations of the day of the Lord that are happening all throughout history, and that's great. But all of those are pointing to the ultimate day where Jesus really is going to come back. And he really is going to set the record straight. He really is going to take some people with him off into eternal joy and felicity, and he's going to take other people with him off into eternal judgment and damnation. We should plead with men to embrace the light while there is still time. The fact remains that for every single human being alive on earth right now, the day of the Lord is going to come. And we can tell them now, today, you have the choice. Is that day going to be darkness for you or light? 
Now, I know we're all good Reformed people. We understand that God's sovereign in salvation, blah, 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 but don't be more Reformed than the Bible. The day is coming, and there's a very real sense in which we have a choice. We control the dimmer switch. How will God find us on that day? That's not just something that we say to each other in the church to make sure that we're walking according to the truth. It's something that we also say to call men into the light with us as we walk in the light, as he is in the light. Amen? Point number two, our worship. Our worship. Uh, It seems like there are certain words that uh, are only reserved for very special occasions, right? I remember growing up in a household with a non-Christian mom. She swore a lot. She cursed all the time. But there were one or two words that she, she kind of threw out when things were like exceptionally bad. But even if you're not talking about four-letter, you know, words like that, there, it seems like there are even certain words in polite society that we just don't like to use very often. We like to reserve for special occasions. We tell our kids not to use them, like, like the word hate, you know, you tell your kids, don't, don't say that you hate them or don't say that you hate that, right? Hate is one of those words that's, it's, it seems like it's only supposed to be reserved for special occasions so you don't rob it of its power. Well, hate is one of the words that the Lord uses to talk about Israel's worship in today's text. Look at verses 21 through 24. The Lord says, I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Sorry, I have to take this off. It's driving me crazy with the microphone. All right, back at it like nothing ever happened. We didn't even skip a beat. Okay, now in this week's text, we see the sarcasm of the Lord from chapter four uh, turn into just pure disdain. In these verses, we see the Lord says that he hates, that he will not accept, and that he cannot even stand the sight nor the sound of Israel's worship. And the reason why is because it's just shot through with sin, right? And what should be a pleasant aroma to the Lord has become a foul stench. Now, uh, we've already talked pretty considerably and at length in the book of Amos as to why their worship was worthless. This is like the fifth sermon so far that this has come up again. So we're not going to dig deep into that. But we'll look at these four aspects of Israel's worship very briefly Uh, And then we're going to kind of hang out on the fourth one, okay, which is music. So there are four aspects of Israel's worthless worship that the Lord addresses uh, in this morning's text. He addresses their feasts, their assemblies, their offerings and sacrifices, which I'm, I'm grouping into one there, and he addresses their music. So let's look at them uh, briefly, okay? Their feasts. Uh, There were three main feasts prescribed by the law of the Lord in ancient Israel. You had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering. So so that this sermon doesn't turn into like a a two-hour Bible study on on the feasts of the law, okay? Basically, each of these feasts was supposed to be an occasion for God's people to come together and to remember their great salvation that they had received from God uh, with hearts full of thanksgiving. They're supposed to remember God's 
faithfulness to them. That's the point of these feasts. And it's supposed to be a joyous occasion. It's supposed to be a great time. And then usually there would be an assembly afterwards, which leads us to the second aspect of their worship, their assemblies. These, uh, what they're called solemn assemblies, they were usually periods about a week long after the feast where the people would come together uh, to have a solemn time. So like, we're going to celebrate, big feast, now we're going to have a, a time of solemn reflection under the Lord. Okay, so in Numbers 29, uh, it's, it's written like this. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, on the 15th day of this seven month, seventh month and for seven days is the feast of booths, okay, which is uh, the feast of the unleavened bread. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Work For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day, so after the week of the feast, you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly, and you shall not do any work. So that's what we're talking about here, okay? It's just the, the solemn side, just like the Lord's Supper. There should be, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, a mixture of celebration and joy, but there should also be a solemn, heavy, weighty aspect to it, okay? Next, we have the offerings. There were three general kinds of offerings prescribed in the Old Testament. Burnt offerings, grain offerings, and peace offerings. Uh, each of these was just meant to be a sacrifice under the Lord in light of the people's sin and God's great grace towards them, Okay? And then finally, we have singing. We're going to hang out more on singing this morning because it's probably the most relevant to our lives and there's probably more confusion about singing in the church today than, than almost anything else. Uh, well, that might be too strong, but only by a little. Uh, singing was a very vital aspect of worship for the people of Israel. It always has been, right? Singing uh, is one of the earliest ways that God taught his people to rehearse the grace that they had received from him. Do you remember Miriam's psalm from the book of, song from the book of Exodus, right? The Lord says, hey, listen, I just rescued you from slavery, delivered you from evil, you are my people, and now I want you to have this song that you can sing together as a nation so that you never forget about my grace. Later in the life of Israel, singing had become so integral to the spiritual life of Israel that uh, King David appointed singers to serve perpetually alongside the priests serving in the temple. First Chronicles fifteen sixteen says it like this. David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments because remember, it's not, uh, it's not 50 people in a room, it's it's an entire, you know, tribes of people, right? So the tire, the lamb, the, the, the tire, the... Well, no, the lyre, the tambourine, all that stuff. You know, you're not playing for a hundred people. You're probably playing for a few thousand people. So play and play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. Now, these singers and these tambourine players and all this stuff, they weren't supposed to just be performers, right? That's how we think. We read this verse according to our modern lens of like entertainment culture, even in the church, theotainment, and we think, oh, these guys probably stood up on a stage, you know, they had a fog machine, the laser and the lights, and they're probably rocking out on the, on the tambourine, and God's people are just sitting there like, man, these guys are good, right? No, that's not what's happening here. Uh, listen to how it's described in Second Chronicles twenty nine twenty eight. 
the whole assembly worshipped while the singer sang and the trumpeter sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. So you see two things happening. One, the people are singing while the offering is being made. So singing is a part of what they're doing as they're carrying out this intense, all-intensive worship experience. And also you see that the singers sing, the trumpeters play, and the people participate with them. Singing was so important for the people of God in their worship that later after Judah got exiled and they were returned back into the land and God was reestablishing the people in the, in the promised land, you know, they went about the business of rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the wall. And when they rebuilt the temple, they put priests back in the temple. But they also made sure to reappoint these singers. Not only that, but they, these singers were given special exemption, exemptions just like the priests. So the singers didn't receive any land, just like the priests didn't receive any land because their inheritance was from the Lord. The singers were prevented from being taxed just like the priests were. The singers were, were to be paid a living wage, just like the priests were. Uh, on that note, as a quick aside, we certainly cannot afford to have a full-time Jacob or, or Grant or you know, Eric uh, doing that in, in the life of our church, but who knows maybe what might happen. I think the people of God are always uh, benefited when you have somebody who can spend a lot of time focusing on leading us well and, and singing together, but maybe that's just something that we should pray towards. Now, by the time you get to the days of Jesus, singing was commonplace during worship in the synagogue, okay? And, and the reason why is because it was understood by everyone that that's just what we do. We're God's people. We're here to worship God's holy name. And so we're going to sing about him. This is why the earliest Christians were known, as one historian put it, to get together to, quote, sing hymns and worship Christ. That's what they were known to do. We're going to worship him and we're going to sing to him. Now, uh, singing is a sweet gift to us, but it's also something that the Lord desires for himself. God loves it when his people, his children, gather around his throne and sing and tell him, Daddy, we love you. And we do it in song. That's why Ephesians 5.19 says to sing and to make a melody to the Lord. To the Lord. We spend a lot of time in this church talking about how singing isn't just to God, it's to each other, but it's ultimately to God. He ultimately receives joy from our singing, right? He receives so much joy from it, in fact, that he sings back over us. He joins into the chorus of worship. Whenever I find Christians who just like principally are opposed to singing, I don't understand it. I understand if you think your voice is bad or maybe you're just not built that way. I still think we should push back on that. But who are like principally opposed to singing, I don't understand because when we sing to God, God sings back to us and it becomes this beautiful symphony of singing. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Loud singing. But it seems like the Lord is not responding to the singing in ancient Israel with his own sweet song. It seems like God is not pleased with the music that is being sung by the people of Israel. It's not that the harp and the lyre are out of tune. It's not that the instruments are being played poorly. It's not like the, 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 the voices can't carry a tune and so God's not happy that the people aren't singing well. 
It's not even that the words are shallow and ultimately worthless like a bunch of Hillsong ditties. It's that the people singing these words are unregenerate. And the Lord does not delight in evil men singing praises to his most holy name. You know, so many churches have worship wars, right? One faction in the church wants this kind of music. Another faction in the church wants that kind of music. We like this worship leader when he sings, and we like this worship leader when he sings. But friends, you know, the Lord is less concerned about the kind and the quality of our music. Notice I did not say he's unconcerned, but he is less concerned with the kind and the quality of our music and more concerned with two things, that we are singing true words and that we are actually true worshipers. You can get a hundred pagans in a room and give them all hail the power of Jesus' name. Uh, uh, and the Lord is not pleased at all by that. He's probably not pleased by my singing, but don't let that stop you. I mean, what he wants is people who actually know him and love him and who trust in him to sing these things to his name. This idea uh, of Jesus not being pleased with uh, worship that comes from people who are dead inside and who are, in fact, not belonging to him is the reason why Jesus was so harsh to the Pharisees. You notice there's a kind of harshness here in his language towards the Israelites that later comes through the mouth and ministry of Jesus when he's talking to the religious leaders, right? He says that they have a, a form of godliness, but they deny its power. They're whitewashed tombs. Picking up on the same theme later in his letter to Timothy, the apostle Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, people will be lovers of themselves. Now listen, keep, keep what we've said so far about the, how the people of Israel are living in the days of Amos when you listen to this. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I mean, doesn't this sound exactly like the northern people of Israel in the days of Amos? Then he says, such people have a form of godliness but deny its power. And he says, have nothing to do with such people. The Israelites have a form of godliness, but that, that godliness has no power. Whatever true godliness is, it should produce in you the ability to be righteous as a people, to walk in holiness, to be upright. So the Lord is less concerned about whether or not we're singing hymns or contemporary music, and he's more concerned about whether or not we're singing songs to him on Sunday and then living in flagrant sin Monday through Saturday. That's really what the Lord is concerned about. He's less concerned about guitars and drums or pianos and tambourines and more concerned with whether or not we're using, for example, our authority to crush our neighbors or to serve them. The Lord definitely cares about the words that we sing, and I don't think he's particularly pleased with shallow music being sung in the church that's all about us and not about him. But he's probably more upset with people who sing to him but don't belong to him. This is why regenerate church membership is so important. I'm coming back to this application point for fear, uh, with, with the fear of knowing that like, it might be seen as like, eh, I think you're kind of bumping up against a hobby horse here. I just don't, I, I don't think so. I think it's so clear from the text. God hates worthless worship. 
And one of the reasons why God is so unpleased with so many churches in America today is because they are filled with people who don't actually know him. Because to be a member in a church, all you have to do is sign your name on a card or come forward whenever the pastor asks if anyone wants to become a member. There's no kind of looking into a person's life to see if they really do believe the gospel and if they really are living out that gospel. And so they gather every Sunday morning and maybe they pray, maybe they read scriptures, but they're definitely going to sing. Is the Lord pleased with that singing? Well, what if 75% of your church is unregenerate? I don't know what the threshold percentage-wise is. I don't assume that any church is 100% regenerate. I don't assume that every member of our church is truly regenerate. But it seems like at a certain point, you have to stop and ask yourself, am I setting my church up as a member or as a pastor to like not just accidentally participate in worthless worship, but to almost guarantee that that's what we're doing? Not practicing meaningful membership on the front end, not practicing church discipline on the back end when you find out that you have unregenerate people in the church is the main way to guarantee that you end up with a bunch of people who give worthless worship to the Lord every single week and you need to know that God hates that worship. So as long as I'm a pastor in this church or a pastor of any church anywhere, we're gonna try to make sure not infallibly because we're not God, but as much as possible, both as elders and members of this church, that the church is full of people who actually belong to the Lord because that's the only way we can guarantee that that he doesn't hate what we do when we come together. Point number three, our exaltation. Uh, Our image of Roman Catholicism in the West is relatively tame, right? Right? We think, ah, you know, guys wearing dog collars and, you know, confessional booths. And I know they do, you know, some weird stuff with candles, with beads. You know, there's nuns who whack your knuckles with rulers and stuff like that. But like, yeah, you know, it just seems kind of kooky. But you should know that in most parts of the world, especially in the global south, Roman Catholicism, which I should add is also itself an aberration of biblical Christianity, has become mixed with uh, one kind of pagan religion or another, right? That's called syncretism, where you try to combine the Christian faith with some pagan religion, whether you're doing it on purpose or you're doing it on accident. That's what it is. Uh, let me give you an example of that. Uh, I remember gathering in the Plaza de Armas. I'm not trying to show off. I just can't say it in the white way. Uh, I spent so long trying to perfect my Spanish accent, and we were in Arequipa, Peru, Okay. Uh, thousands of people were there in the, in the square that day. And uh, they were there to celebrate the day of some particular saint. We actually happened to be uh, in two different cities on two separate occasions when they, were, when they were doing this, so we saw it a couple of times. Now, in order to celebrate the day of the saint, they had uh, like a shrine. And they would set this shrine up on these big logs, okay, like four logs. And on the top of the shrine, there was this big, this massive image of the saint that they were celebrating. I don't, I don't remember who it was. He must have been the saint of the color purple because everyone was wearing purple that day, like everyone. Even if like, you weren't wearing purple head to toe, you had like a little purple pendant on or something on, you had to be purple. Now what would happen is, is a number of men would uh, get up under the logs and they would hoist this uh, thing, this, this, this picture, this image up onto their shoulders and they would march around the city with it. They would start by doing a couple of laps around the plaza, and then they would go out and they would walk the surrounding neighborhoods. And preferably, they would do it 
uh, bare feet. There were women walking in front of the shrine with incense and like these pots of burning coal that would emit smoke. And uh, I have pictures of all this. Maybe one day I'll bring them in and show them to you guys. We'll do a slideshow. Um, but it would follow everywhere the shrine went. And then uh, it would stop periodically and a bunch of people would run up, the citizens, they would run up and they would throw flowers up at the shrine and they would try to get the flowers up to the image of the saint on top of the shrine. They thought that it would bring them good luck. Now this kind of procession is not new. This is not unique to Peru or to Roman Catholic syncretism or to South America. These kinds of pagan processions are actually quite common and have been common for thousands of years. This is a normal thing that people do when they worship false gods. It happened very often in the ancient Near East. Idols and images would be lifted up and paraded around in a form of tribute and worship. And so in verse 26, God says that the people of Israel, who are okay with worshiping Yahweh, apparently, and other gods... They will have their little procession. Look at it, verse 26. He says, You shall take up Sikuth, your king, and Kiun, your star god. So these are just uh, ancient Near Eastern astrological gods, okay, that, that were common in the area. You shall take up Sikuth, your king, and Kiun, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So here, God is saying, okay, fine. Worship your gods. Have your processions. Lift them up if you want and take your little march. But just so you know, your procession is going to be a procession into judgment. Your march is going to be a march into exile when I send Assyria to come and to take you away. And then several decades later, that's exactly what happened. In 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 6, we read, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. Remember, Samaria are the ten tribes in the north. Captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. Friends, one of the worst things that we can do is persist in our own foolish desires. And one of the worst things that God can do is to let us continue in our bad religion. I know you're probably getting tired of hearing me talk about Southern Bible Belt religiosity, and I get tired of it too, but then I come back to a text like this and I'm reminded that we need to be reminded constantly. I don't want God to tell us as a church, sure, go ahead, idolize your Southern honorific culture, your nice, polite family life, your Alabama football, go ahead, raise it up, enjoy it, and take it with you all the way to your death and destruction. Brothers and sisters, God hates worthless worship, but he will let us have it if we like. And then he will come and do justice, and we will find ourselves in darkness. In order to make sure that that doesn't happen, we have to be constantly pushing back against the darkness, the darkness of, of this world, the darkness of this culture that surrounds us and pushes in on us from all sides. We have to push back against that darkness with a bright light of Jesus Christ. And that, word, that light is found no more, nowhere more readily than in his word. So we must look at it, we must study it, we must believe it, 
We must use it, remind each other of it, correct each other with it, and we must trust in it. We must believe that what it tells us is good and right and true. And if we do that, our futures will be very bright. Let's pray. Lord, we entrust ourselves to you. Lord, we know that if it was left up to us, we would be found in darkness on the day of your judgment. But because you have sovereignly taken us, saved us, and you are in fact even now leading us, we know that we will get to be home and be with you one day. We pray, Lord, that you would bring more into the fold, that we would be in the light with many millions and perhaps even billions of our brothers and sisters enjoying you forever. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.